Have you ever witnessed something truly terrifying, unsettling to all the laws of nature? A few years ago, my family and I were driving back to Chicago from an event in Indianapolis. It wasn't terribly late, maybe 10 p.m., but we had our kids with us and had finally gotten them to fall asleep in the car for the rest of our journey home. As we were driving in the dark of night on the highway, there wasn't traffic, not many cars on the road. There was a car a bit ahead of us and a white pickup truck a little ways behind us. And there was a semi-truck behind it that was not on our radar until we heard a horrible pop sound that alarmed all our senses. We started looking around to see what was going on. All of a sudden, I see in my periphery the semi-truck plowing down the highway on our left, on fire. My husband said he could feel the heat on the left side of his face. That's how close it was. Thankfully, the driver of the semi had managed to jump out in time, and it started swerving to the right in front of us, so we had to slam on our brakes and get off the highway quick. Thankfully, everyone was safe, and our kids slept through the whole thing, miracle upon miracles. But to this day, we both would say it's one of the scariest and craziest things we've both witnessed. That's what I imagine to be a similar feeling to those who were living through November 22nd to November 24th, 1963. My parents were not even a year old at this point in time, but my grandparents and their parents came from generations that had walked through an immense amount of trial as a nation. The Dust Bowl, the Great Depression, two world wars, the Cold War, Korean War, living the Vietnam War, and more. And if that had not been enough to carry as a nation, Kennedy is assassinated and the news spreads and people are overwhelmed with shock and grief. But the chaos only continues to unfold throughout the weekend. The spark of the assassination ignites into a flame for all the world to see on live television as all eyes are on the alleged assassin of President Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald. Welcome back to Plausible, a podcast where you, the jury, dive with me into the discovery of things having the appearance of truth or reason. Plausibility gives space not for what you already know, but for the outliers, conjectures, the unexplained history, the crazy-sounding hard-to-believe but true. Got your coffee? Or maybe an iced tea? And join me as we rethink what is, or isn't, plausible. Episode 3, The Patsy With all this generation had been through already, there was also the rise and spread of communism. So, when Oswald gets arrested for the assassination of the publicly adored President John F. Kennedy, and news spreads within a day that he is quite likely a communist, there isn't much hope for him in the court of public opinion. Oswald was born October 18, 1939, in New Orleans. His father had died two months before he was born. His mother had just lost her husband and had three sons to raise, and for a time she actually put all three of them into an orphanage. But in 1944, she retrieved them and they all moved to Dallas, Texas, where she remarried. For all his childhood and adolescent years, Oswald's life was tumultuous and unstable. His mother divorced that same man from Dallas, they moved over 20 times, and he never consistently went to school. It is said that his interest in communism began in high school when he started reading a lot of literature 
like Das Kapital and Communist Manifesto. And in 1956, right after he turned 17, he joined the Marines. He spent three years with them, serving in Japan for about half of it, and in that time began learning the Russian language. He requested a discharge from the Marines in order to take care of his mom, which seems more like an excuse than an actual reason. And in that same year, 1959, at age 19, he defected to Russia. At the height of the Cold War, mind you. To defect, according to Merriam Webster, is to forsake one case, party, or nation for another, often because of a change in ideology. And so it was. Oswald was renouncing his American citizenship because he wanted to be in a place that held his same socialist views. Except, he doesn't. Here's the first strange flag to go up. Oswald never actually renounced his American citizenship, and therefore never became a citizen of the Soviet Union. He never completed the paperwork in the Soviet Union to actually renounce citizenship, and yet it is the most commonly known fact about Oswald that he was a defector. But it wasn't as deep or true as the narrative has told for so long. It is even said that Oswald was possibly a project of someone in the CIA who rigged his file so that when he defected, it wouldn't go where it normally does. And these quick dives into the muck that surrounds Lee Harvey Oswald lead me to two important things for you, the jury, to keep in mind as we talk about Oswald. First is that as I have researched him in regards to nearly every detail of Oswald's life, There are people who are adamant things are a lie, and on the other side, those who are just as certain that those same things are true. Secondly, take note of how public certain decisions of Oswald's are, notably things that reinforced the narrative that he was a defector and that he was unstable. The question regarding defection is whether it is plausible that Oswald was a false defector or if indeed he was a genuine one. For example, in an article by the Washington Post on November 1st, 1959, they stated, Lee Harvey Oswald, 20, a recently discharged United States Marine from Fort Worth, Texas, disclosed today that he had taken steps to renounce his American citizenship and become a Soviet citizen. He said the reasons for his move were purely political. I will never return to the United States for any reason. Oswald told a reporter in his room at Moscow's Hotel Metropole. Oswald was the third American to have sought to renounce his American citizenship and stay in Russia in recent months. But after just a few years, he became tired of living in the Soviet Union. He did get married there in 1961 to Marina and unfortunately ended up being very abusive to her. She even allegedly attempted to take her life later in the States because of how bad things got. They were separated the last few months before Oswald's death. But let me tell you something fascinating about Marina. There are lots of questions about her. The main one is that though she claimed to not really speak English, there are testimonies that she was nearly fluent. And the theory behind why she would hide this is that she was actually KGB. Soviet Union security and intelligence, and that she was planted on Oswald to gain intel. Let me take a second on why this would be even more significant than it is in plain sight, or sound. Because Oswald had his language training with the Marines, he was under the authority of the Office of Naval Intelligence when he defected. Victor Marchetti, a former CIA officer, notes that at the Naval Intelligence Base in Nags Head, North Carolina, 
there was a program specifically meant to train false defectors to send to the Soviet Union. James Eugenio describes it this way. The program was for young men who were made to appear disenchanted, poor, American youths who had become turned off and wanted to see what communism was all about. The intent was to have the false defects be recruited by the KGB. Then you would have a double agent in place for whom to funnel disinformation through and receive information from. With this insight, doesn't it seem plausible that Oswald was a false defector? If we take away the narrative that the government kept portraying of Oswald being a defector who was tired of America, does it leave room for a narrative that Oswald was actually a false defector who was trained to be sent to the Soviet Union, married a Soviet citizen who was actually with the KGB, and then worked as a double agent for the CIA? I think there's a lot more to support that than I ever thought before. Okay, so back to the story. We are in the earlier days of Lee and Marina Oswald's marriage. After the Soviet Union, they, along with their new baby, very new baby, June Lee, travel by ship to return to the U.S. on June 13, 1962, which was actually fairly easy for Oswald because, since he was still an American citizen, he just went back to the embassy and they gave him his passport back. Defector no more! As we heard, Oswald had gotten some media attention when he defected because of the controversial timing, and so he was actually disappointed when he arrived back to the States and did not receive the same attention. The FBI contacted the Oswalds and wanted to speak with Lee within a couple of days of his arrival back to the U.S. Though this would typically fall under the CIA's jurisdiction, they did not. The FBI had opened a file on Oswald when he defected, But now they were following up, and after talking with him a couple of times, it seems they were satisfied with him not being a threat. But a few months later, in March 1963, FBI Special Agent James Hostie decided to reopen his file, as well as open a file on Marina. Lee and Marina end up in the Dallas area for most of the next year or so, but they do make a couple of interesting detours. The first is to New Orleans. I couldn't cover the web of what happened that summer in a number of episodes, so let me just tell you a few key points for this episode. In June 1963, Oswald went there to work at Riley Coffee Company. By August, he was unemployed. But while he was there, he also volunteered for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and passed out leaflets for them. This is a very public display of his alleged commitment to communism. And even with that, the Warren Commission doesn't cover any of the summer of 1963 at all. They never talk about Oswald's time in New Orleans in the report or anyone he was involved with there. Also, people who leafleted at other times said they would never have done it the way he did. They would do it at night and leave it at people's doors so there wasn't pressure to read it on the spot and I would guess for secrecy as well. But he was doing it in plain sight, unafraid. And because he was so obvious about it, true communists assumed he was part of an intelligence agency. Lastly, while he was there that summer, he also associated with men like Guy Bannister, David Ferry, and Clay Shaw, who were right-wing extremists. Which is interesting, since he was both handing out flyers for Cuba, but then also spending time with them. It just begs the question that will come back again and again in this episode. Was Oswald really committed to the cause of communism? Or was he living a front because he was working with the CIA in various capacities? 
The second detour is Mexico City in September and October 1963, where Oswald allegedly attempted to get a travel visa to Cuba since he couldn't get one in the U.S. When Oswald went to the Cuban embassy in Mexico City, the CIA tipped it off to the FBI. So a bit later, on November 1st, Agent Hostie went to visit Lee. He wasn't home, so Hostie talked with Ruth Payne, who was the Oswald's landlady, and then he interviewed Marina. From this interview, the FBI agent allegedly walked away putting low priority on Oswald. This is an important reminder because remember in the last episode when we talked about the motorcade? I mentioned that they sent authorities to check the route before the motorcade. And with that, there is another thing they did. Special Agent Wynn Lawson of the White House Detail had a primary responsibility of finding people who would be a threat to the president when they traveled. He investigated in Texas to see if there were any of those threats. He got the photos of some protesters that were handed out to the Secret Service and Dallas police to keep an eye out on the day of the motorcade. But in all this investigation, Hostie does not give Oswald's name to Agent Lawson. We are talking a lot about the CIA and the FBI, and I want to take a little time here to share something from someone who knows a lot more about all of these conspiracy details than I do, Oliver Stone. I've already recommended his movie, JFK, and if you haven't seen it yet, bundle up with some popcorn and rent it, or buy it, even better. Stone said in an interview, there was a conspiracy to assassinate Kennedy, and then there was a conspiracy to cover it up a much larger one. And I couldn't agree more. But when his movie came out in 1991, it actually led to Stone being able to testify before Congress and help pass the JFK Records Act, which allowed them to declassify documents and do some limited investigation from 1994 to 98. It was very fruitful, but was not covered at all by the media. Now, 30 years later, he has a new film coming out called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Listen to this clip of an interview with Stone regarding the new film. It sheds quite an insight into the idea of Oswald's ties with authorities. Another thing that we get into is Lee Harvey Oswald. We, we have access now, declassified, uh, we have information that the CIA was quite aware of his, knew where he was, was supervising him from 1958 to 63, which makes him an asset of the CIA. This is incredible. And also we know that Jack Ruby was, a C, uh, was an FBI informer. So we, the intelligence agencies are involved with these people from the beginning until the end. Uh, also, we know that Oswald, this is crucial, was not on the sixth floor when the uh, shots were fired because nobody saw him. The three people in the, uh, three women who worked on the fourth floor, they testified, two of them testified, and their testimony was changed by the Warren Commission. And we tracked them down. Another, a researcher tracked him down in the 1990s and got it straight. And the news is that these three women went down the stairs right away, did not see B. Harvey Oswald on the stairs. And they, they testified and signed all of it, but they was never listened to by the Warren Commission. That kind of changing the witness statements is very important to this case. Back to Lee and Marina's days in Dallas in 1963. Oswald had mail-ordered both a revolver in January and an Italian military rifle in February under an alias A. Heidel. A for Alec as a play on a nickname the Russians had given him while he worked there, 
and Heidel for the surname of a Marine that he had served with. This rifle is allegedly the one that was found on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository and used to kill President Kennedy. But there are conflicting reports on whether Oswald tested positive for paraffin on his face, which would show if he had fired a rifle. Also, the fingerprints on the rifle were impartial, so it is tenuous at best to tie that weapon to Oswald. And, conveniently, not only does the government try to tie Oswald to the assassination of JFK, but also to the attempted assassination of a man named General Edwin Walker. Walker was a prominent far-right representative for Dallas. When General Walker was in his home on April 10th, a gun was fired at him through the window. Now, the tie they had to pin this on Oswald was from a testimony of Marina that Oswald had said things to her the day of the shooting about Walker and shooting him, as well as documents in his home that could have tied him to the attempt on Walker's life. But here's the thing. The shot was fired less than 100 feet from the window, and the shooter missed. Let me ask you, if it was Oswald who attempted to kill Walker allegedly because of his political disagreements, how does that benefit the argument that he was the sole assassin of the president from a six-story window? And really interesting, the timing. No one was accused for the attempted shooting of General Walker until after Oswald was arrested and killed, and then they blamed him. Why? What do they gain? More ammunition to convince the public of Oswald's commitment to his cause, that he was even willing to kill for it. On October 16, 1963, Oswald was hired at the Texas School Book Depository. Ruth Payne, Marina's landlady, got Oswald the job. Now, here we are, at November 22, 1963, the day of the assassination. Oswald allegedly is in the Texas School Book Depository and shoots at Kennedy's car from the sixth floor, then rushes out of the building and runs. On this attempted escape, he allegedly killed a police officer, J.D. Tippett. At 4.15 p.m., NBC reported, The police received a tip that a man who shot and killed a policeman entered a movie theater. The man has been captured. So they find Oswald in a movie theater and arrest him. I have always had a question mark about Oswald killing Officer Tippett because it seems unlikely to me that if you just had attempted to assassinate the president, you would draw attention to yourself by killing someone else and then just go watch a movie. It seems like a better idea to get very unseen very quickly. But again, the narrative of Oswald that has been perpetuated is that he was unstable and blinded by passion for communism. So killing a police officer supports that narrative of portraying a man who killed the president because he was fed up with him and then went frantic. But James D'Eugenio shed some really interesting light on this death of Officer Tippett. Here's what he says in his book, Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. Quote, A truly startling piece of evidence surfaced when FBI agent James Hostie published his book, Assignment Oswald, in 1996. Hostie wrote that fellow FBI agent Bob Barrett drove to the scene of the Tippett murder at 10th and Patton once he heard that a policeman had been shot. When he got there, Captain Westbrook of the Dallas police found a leather wallet near the puddle of blood where Tippett's body had been lying. He showed the wallet to Barrett and asked if he knew anyone by the name of Lee Oswald or Alec Heidel. Barrett said he did not. But films taken by WFAA-TV cameraman Ron Ryland show that prior to Westbrook getting the wallet, 
It had been handed to Sergeant Corey by an unidentified civilian. Corey then gave it to Sergeant Owens, who opened the wallet as Captain Doty looked at the items inside. Later on, Patrolman Jez arrived at the scene. Through a confidential source, Jez insists that the wallet had Oswald's ID inside. In addition to the witness statements, this cannot be Tippett's wallet since when his body was taken to Methodist Hospital, his wallet was removed and his belongings delivered to the DBT Identification Department at 3.25 p.m. One of the items delivered was a black wallet. The monumental problem with this is that the Warren Commission tells us that Oswald's wallet was removed from his pants pocket on the way to the police station after he was arrested. And further, Oswald supposedly left a wallet in his dresser at the Payne's home the morning of the assassination. This new evidence indicates that someone dropped a mock-up of Oswald's wallet, including an ID, at the scene of the Tippett shooting. That someone was not Oswald. Diogenio goes on to tell us that there was a witness the FBI never interviewed as well, Mrs. Higgins. She lived close to the crime scene, and from her testimony of the shots and the time, it would only leave Oswald three minutes to run nearly a mile from where he was to where Officer Tippett was. Diogenio notes that Mrs. Higgins saw the perpetrator running away, and she saw that it was definitely not Oswald. He says... With the discovery of the dropped wallet and the testimony of Mrs. Higgins, the case against Oswald and the Tippett shooting, which even some critics bought into, is now gone. So let's laser into the last few hours of Oswald's life. From There Was a President, a book that gives us NBC's reports chronologically of the weekend of the assassination, here are a few key moments. 11.37 p.m. Tom Pettit reports at Dallas City Jail saying... This is where Oswald is being held. We can see Captain Will Fritz, head of the Homicide Bureau, in the background. Oswald is still being questioned. Saturday, November 23rd, 7.15 p.m. H. Lewis Nichols, president of the Dallas Bar Association, says, I visited Oswald in his cell. He indicated he wanted a lawyer from New York or one from the American Civil Liberties Union, who, as he put it, believes in the same things I do. He was not defiant, but he definitely did not want a Dallas attorney to represent him. I believe Oswald will get a fair trial in Dallas. Then another reporter says, Oswald is being moved once more into the interrogation room for further questioning. The Dallas police are calling this an ironclad case. They are positive he shot and killed the president. Sunday, November 24th. It is reported by Pettit in Dallas at 12.05 p.m., We are standing in the basement corridor where Lee Oswald will pass through momentarily. Extraordinary security precautions have been taken for the prisoner. At 12.20 p.m., Pettit is reporting from the basement of the Dallas City Jail. In NBC's records, it says, The start of the transfer of Lee Harvey Oswald from Dallas City Jail to Dallas County Jail. The cameras are trained on Oswald, the accused assassin of President Kennedy. He is flanked by detectives, moving toward the ramp where an armored car is waiting to effect the transfer. Suddenly, out of the lower right corner of the screen, a man, wearing a hat, lunges forward, his back to the camera. A shot rings out. Oswald gasps, grasps his side, and starts to fall. Here's Pettit in the camera footage on live television. There is Leon. He's been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. 
There's the man with a gun. It's absolute panic. Absolute panic here in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters. Detectives have their guns drawn. Oswald has been shot. There is no question about it. Oswald has been shot. Jack Ruby walked right into the transfer of Oswald, surrounded by police officers and the media, and shot Oswald on live television. And with that, we will never really know what happened. Oswald will never get a trial, and the government will keep trying to keep all the details of his life under the umbrella of his instability and love for communism. Have you ever wondered how a person like Lee Harvey Oswald, coming back from the Soviet Union during the Cold War with the reputation of a communist, gets a job and any friends again in the U.S.? Enter George de Morinshield. George was born in Russia. He was born into an upper-class family and was well-connected for most of his life. He knew Jackie Kennedy's mom. He was acquainted with Bush Sr., He was a known contact for both the CIA and FBI, and he was Oswald's friend. He helped Oswald find the lodging with Ruth Payne, who was a Quaker and also most likely affiliated with the CIA. What a combo. George also helped him find jobs and connected Lee and Marina to the whole Russian community in Dallas. Many people think it is strange that someone so well-off and established would consort with someone like Oswald but it seems there was a pretty reasonable explanation. De Morenshield had made a deal that he would help Oswald if the State Department would help him with an oil exploration deal in Haiti. And so it seems they did. He went to Haiti in April 1963 and never saw Oswald after that. I don't know if George knew all that would fall upon Oswald or knew anything of a larger plan, but it seems he did genuinely help him. It is clear the ties between them, though, were through intelligence agencies. When asked about Oswald, George said that he was a semi-educated hillbilly and had even said in regards to the assassination, I never would believe that any government would be stupid enough to trust Lee with anything important. George died on March 29, 1977, allegedly from suicide by shotgun before he was able to testify to the House Select Committee on Assassinations. His is one of the many mysterious deaths surrounding the assassination. To end, I'd like to bring you to the beginning. Remember how we learned about the false defector program in Nags Head, North Carolina? I brought it up because it is a fascinating argument for a complete paradigm shift in the way we think about Oswald, but also for another reason. When Oswald was being held in jail on Saturday, November 23rd, he tried to call a man named John Hurt who lived in Raleigh, North Carolina. It turns out that this John Hurt was a former military counterintelligence officer. It appears the call never went through, but former CIA officer Marchetti thinks this call is what sealed Oswald's death. If he was a CIA agent, Maybe he was just reaching out to someone at the 11th hour, just as any spy who got caught would do. But sadly for Oswald, no one would help him. And Jack Ruby took that opportunity away. So it looks like Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't the only patsy. You, the jury, do you think it is plausible that Oswald was actually a false defector of the U.S.? Is there evidence for you that is convincing you less or more of conspiracy? Let's keep going. The rabbit hole 
is just beginning. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Plausible. I'd love for you to subscribe so you can continue to be part of the jury. These are my theories and ideas formed from the wealth of knowledge of many others. If you are interested in those details, check out the sources on our Instagram, plausible underscore podcast. Specific to this episode, if you want to learn more, I'd recommend the book Destiny Betrayed by James Eugenio, especially to learn more about Oswald's time in New Orleans, checking out the PBS Frontline episode, Who Was Lee Harvey Oswald?, and interviews with Oliver Stone on YouTube. It runs deep, people. Plausible is written and narrated by Christina Hoagland, edited and produced by James Lobwin, music by Rodent Law.